This podcast was recorded on May 6th, 2020. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide updates or changes. All right. Good morning. Uh, welcome, everybody, uh, to a new episode of The Sherman Show. I'm here uh, from my own uh, office, remote, uh, but I have my co-host, Sam Lau, who's also remote. Hey, hey. And today, on May 6th, we're recording this podcast to discuss uh, what's going on in the world today. And we thought it'd be a good time to bring back uh, Bill Campbell from DoubleLine, who's a portfolio manager on our global bond strategies, and he covers a lot of the macro front. So welcome back to the podcast, Bill. Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, uh, you're remote as well, so we're triangulating this podcast across Southern California right now. And I think w- before we jump into kind of uh, what's going on in your space, Bill, what we'd like to do is uh, have Sam go over a quick flash report on what's going on in the markets as we sit here. Um, what I have is day 48 of our quarantine or, or safety at home measures um, here with the Double Line family. And so, uh, Sam, do you want to give us an update? Yeah, so uh, day 48 of sheltering in place for the folks at Double Line gives us on the S&P 500 uh, down 11% on a year-to-date basis through last night, which would have been May 5th. Um, on the Barclays U.S. bond aggregate, we have it up 5% year-to-date. Gold is up 12% for the year. Copper on the uh, spot or on the um, front month futures contract is down about 17%. And WTI crude oil futures on the prompt month is down 60% year to date. But that's a pretty big change because it was it's up 30% month to date. So just in the last uh, five days, we've seen a 5% price appreciation in the front month contract of WTI crude oil. And uh, I don't think we need to remind listeners that it was down to negative uh, 40, uh, 40 bucks uh, the, the uh, during one period on 420, uh, April 20th of this year. So that's a pretty big reversal there. In terms of sovereign yields on the 10-year uh, point of the curve for the treasuries, we have it, uh, The looks like the yield is up about five basis points for 66 bips. The gen- German 10-year uh, boomed at negative uh, 60 basis points. And the JGBs at the 10-year point, guess what? It's still flat, pretty much at zero. So that's what... Uh, yield curve targeting, I guess, gets you nowadays. In terms of spreads, uh, we're unched on IG cash bonds at about 200. High yield, uh, we're down about, uh, they've tightened in about 20 basis points to 750. And EM, we're just under 500 at 490. In terms of the economy, we've seen some uh, important data come out. Initial jobless claims through last week uh, showed that we now are over 30 million people who have filed for initial jobless claims over the past six weeks. We have the the next print coming out tomorrow, which is estimated to be about an an additional 3 million people for uh, the previous week. We had payroll numbers come out today, uh, putting it out for the month of April at uh, 20 million people uh, down uh, in terms of the change that have uh, lost their 
jobs. I want to be careful on this because we do have the BLS non-farm payrolls coming out, which is also different than these un initial uh, uh, jobless claims because one is an employee report. So what's reported by the employer, that's the payroll report showing that there is a decline in, by 20 million jobs. And that's what the BLS report for non-farm payrolls is estimated to be about as well, which comes out on Friday in addition to the unemployment report. Yeah, just to be clear here too, Sam, to the listeners, the, the report you're talking about today is not the official government number, but it's the ADP report, right? So paycheck um, company, they, they put together this uh, this data set. And so some people were estimating that that number be simply lower because of some of the methodologies they use. They assume well, there's a lot of bounce back in some of those jobs. Uh, but uh, it, did, it did hit kind of right on top of the estimate that we saw there about 20 and a half million. That's right. That's right. So I think, you know, I dug in a little bit to the differences. It seems like ADP just reports it on an intramonth basis. So if there are payrolls that are lost or gained during the month, um, not for the entire month itself, but any during any week during the month, then they'll include it. Whereas the BLS, they look at it as a month as a whole, if in terms of if an individual did not work for that entire month, then that's picked up, whereas the ADP will pick it up intramonth. Uh, so there's slight differences that can arise from that. Um, what else did we get? We had the ISM numbers, which are the kind of the granddaddy of the, the purchasing manager reports. Both manufacturing and non-manufacturing are right at around uh, 41 and a half, which puts them both firmly in contraction um, versus uh, expansion. So once it's below 50, that's typically what uh, people consider to be a contraction of the uh, econ economic activity. Uh, both of those seem a little bit elevated. In fact, they, if it weren't for one subsector within that print, which is uh, deliveries, which has seen a lot of backup due to uh, uh, shortages and plant shutdowns, that people are estimating that that would be closer to the high 20s, low 30s type of print. So, which is what you see in the market data, right? The the competing uh, economic data sources market. That's M A R K I T that put that out. And so in their data set, you saw significantly lower numbers than the ISM. Uh, again, just not having those adjustments in there. That's right, that's right. So it seems like more weakness and some more pain to come uh, in terms of at least from the ISM numbers in the following month, I would expect. Uh, and then finally, for the economic roundup, the the good old Fed balance sheet. It seems like the, the Fed has slowed down in terms of uh, growing its balance sheet. Uh, last, last week, it was at about 6.6 .6 trillion. And this week, it looks like it ended up at 6.7 trillion for the, the the most recent print. So a little bit of slowdown there. Um, we'll see if that continues. But in terms of uh, what we've seen in in projected deficit, I think you were talking about earlier, Jeff. It doesn't seem likely that it's going to slow down very much. Yeah. Um, on that note, too, it's it's funny you say, hey, it's not much of an increase, and it's only a hundred billion dollars at the Fed bought <laughs> yeah. in the last week or so. But um, it's funny how we we start to kind of uh, lose track of, of what the meaning is when we start using these decimal points on these massive numbers, right? Yeah. Um, on that note, too, I mean, don't forget that we saw uh, earlier in the week the uh, the the budget deficit come out and Treasury announced uh, what they were going to fund. And uh, at the beginning of the year, they were talking about second quarter funding. There would actually be a surplus. So uh, they would actually pay down about $55 billion in Treasury securities. It turns out that estimate they missed by just a little bit. Uh, reminds me of that movie Major League where uh, the announcer says just a bit outside when he throws it almost in the dugout uh, <laughs> because the, the deficit is scheduled to increase 
uh, just shy of three trillion. It was two point nine nine trillion. So I guess they didn't want to borrow that extra ten billion dollars a bond to get that that round number of three trillion. Um, so since that's been announced, it, it seems that there has been a little bit of weakness in the treasury market, especially on the back end of the curve, um, especially as they've talked about um, doing auctions. They had the twenty year auction. Uh, they're talking about doing uh, larger size and longer dated bonds, tens out to thirties, and we've seen the curve kind of steepen over this period too. Um, and so. Uh, this is this is a uh, really, I think, uh, a, a pivotal moment for the rates market, too. Uh, again, as we watch this in the direction of interest rates, that who's going to buy this incremental three trillion dollars? I'm sorry, two point nine nine trillion. <laughs> yeah, let's get it right. Let's dollars. Get it. <laughs> let's be let's be correct here um, of Treasury securities there. As we saw that when the Fed really started ramping up QE this time, uh, yields have been you know kind of flattish to slightly up over this period. So I think this is going to be the testament for the bond market to see, do deficits matter? Um, I know these are extraordinary times, but um, as we start to try to get through the recovery of this, um, how is the market going to gobble that down? So um, given that that kind of intro, I think that's a perfect point for Bill um, to kind of step in, in here too. Uh, Bill, maybe you can tell our listeners again, refresh them a little bit on your background and what you you do here for us at Double Line, and kind of pick up uh, what we're talking about here when it comes to uh, these monetary policy, well, I guess it's a fiscal policy, I should say, uh, here in the U.S. and and how that looks across, uh, comparable to the rest of the world. So I'll start with that. Uh, sure. Well, thanks for having me on, uh, Sherman and Lau. Um, obviously, there's a lot to talk about today, but uh, in terms of a quick background, I manage the uh, global interest rate and currency portfolios here at Double Line. Uh, you know, we look across uh, all major liquid markets, both developed and emerging. Uh, we don't do frontier countries, uh, but if there is a liquid FX and local rates market, uh, you know, we're looking at it. And uh, our investment process relies on deep dive fundamental research, as you two know, but to kind of inform the listeners, we look at kind of two elements, really. Uh, we focus on the global macro trends, which uh, is kind of an all, all hands on deck at double line effort. And then we have, uh, you know, bottoms up uh, country fundamental analysis, where we do deep dive research on each country. Um, we have standardized our research to focus on the key drivers that we think will drive interest rates and currencies over you know, the next, let's call it three months to one year. Uh, the standardized research allows us to really uh, you know, do a deep analysis of the country, but then to pull out and allow us to do relative value comparisons between countries. And as you know, uh, especially in currency markets, uh, it's all a relative game. Um, maybe I could just do a quick uh, highlight of the global markets the way I see them. I know, uh, Sam, you, you did a nice uh, overview uh, you know, of the markets in general, but uh, when I look at um, the, current, the global interest rate and currency markets, uh, it, there are a lot of interesting things happening here, and uh, maybe this is a good place to start and we can move into the policy discussion next. But when we look at year-to-date performance, uh, there's been a very large divide uh, between what I would call uh, kind of the uh, safety assets versus more cyclical assets. And what I'm talking about there is uh, when I look at emerging markets, especially emerging market FX, you're looking at a very pro-cyclical asset. And what do I mean by that? I mean, uh, returns are really driven by uh, in the first order, the relative growth outlooks for those countries. 
And one notable item that we, you know, we should note is um, emerging market FX remains very weak. And uh, a lot of the high beta, you know, emerging market currencies are at their historic lows or around their historic lows. And, uh, you know, the year-to-date performance, unlike other risk assets, we tend to lump uh, emerging market FX into kind of a risk asset category. And unlike the rebounds that we've seen in, um, you know, equities and uh, credit markets, we have not seen that bounce back in emerging market FX. In my markets, it's really been the defensive markets that have held up. So uh, buying uh, government interest rates in developed markets have worked well. Uh, the yen, as we know, has uh, you know, but is a, as is a pretty is a safety trade in uh, you know FX markets, and those uh, in general have worked uh, you know relatively well. Uh, versus the pro cyclical has been um, extremely weak, and uh, I, I think that you know we need to kind of take a step back and uh, you know say where are we right now? Um, I think the COVID shock is unprecedented. Uh, when I when I kind of look at the full stop that's happened across the globe, normally we go through um, cyclical downturns. Uh, and uh, what I'm afraid is that uh, the cyclical playbook is being used, uh, you know, for uh, by market participants in this shock. And my concern is that maybe there's a misdiagnosis between uh, <laughs> using that cyclical playbook. Uh, versus some of the big structural items that potentially this COVID crisis, uh, you know, is bringing up. So uh, what am I talking about here? I think that uh, market participants for a long time have been expecting, uh, you know, that we've been we've been in a late cycle. Uh, we've been in the late cycle phase for several years, and we've been waiting for whatever the crisis would be that would take us into the cyclical downturn. In 2018, it was the Fed over hiking interest rates. In 2019, it was trade. And then finally, in 2020, we get the COVID crisis. And uh, now people have pulled out the cyclical playbooks and said, okay, the government's come in and give a bridge loan to, the, to a lot of businesses and to individuals to try to get us to 2021. And then if we look out and there's GDP and activity repair, uh, you know, maybe there are a lot of good investments. So um, I, I think that cyclical playbook needs to be, uh, you know, uh, used with an element of caution this time around. Uh, you know, there are some serious structural changes that are happening in the, uh, you know, in the global economy on the back of this. And, you know, maybe, we, you know, I, I, I know we'll go into more detail later in this uh, podcast about it, but we're going to be rebalancing supply chains, uh, you know, out of China, and that's going to be a big shock. There's a lot of debt in the system, and, uh, you know, that clearly, uh, you know, has been with us for a while, but we could be at the point where, you know, that starts to matter. And I think consumer preferences, uh, you know, are going to change, especially, uh, you know, consuming recreational goods, whether we're going on vacation or, uh, you know, what we're doing now, we're all telecommuting is, uh, you know, is this going to be used more frequently, especially for like if we think about virtual policy conferences. So these are big structural items that would change that may disrupt that cyclical playbook that we're thinking about. And then I guess looping to, you know, your specific uh, question, Sherman, uh, you know, coming back to, you know, policy, um, a lot of policy 
historic policy has been thrown at this crisis so far, um, which you know brings to question how much space is left. You know how much more policy is left because when we look at the uh, that just the magnitude of the shock. Uh, this has been a full stop of activity. Normally, policy happens towards tail end of a cyclical slowdown, and policy acts as a stimulant. This time around, with uh, you know, we really haven't even seen the Q2 numbers. Yeah, the Q, we're just uh, you know, we're just kind of looking at you know Q1 GDP slowdown, uh, you know, uh, prints right now. Uh, but we could see uh, economic shocks of uh, you know minus 10, minus 15, maybe minus 20 percent, and those are roughly the size of uh, you know the policies that have been implemented so far. So the difference this time is fiscal policy and uh, you know uh, uh, government policy this time around is more of a plug rather than a stimulus. So going into the re uh, get going to the recovery phase. Uh, you know, we need to be, uh, you know, we, we, we're probably going to need, uh, you know, more thrown at it. And I think we'll get a lot more from central banks and governments. And in my mind, this needs to, you know, um, this, this leads to kind of a split in how we need to think about markets. We need to think about the near term versus the medium term. Right. And on that point, yeah. Bill, I think it's important yeah. that what you highlighted uh, was talking about, you know, that a lot of your risk markets, and I'm using the air quotes there for the word risk, um, it have not rebounded similarly to what we've seen, let's say, in the U.S. equity market. And so I, we found that uh, very interesting as, as we think about creating opportunity sets. And I did a webcast yesterday um, on the various asset allocation we have a double line and I use a lot of charts showing the differentiation of performance across credit markets, even just in the U.S. And so I think what we've seen here is that investors are, are coddled or the idea of don't fight the Fed or there's a Fed put out there um, has brought support back to the markets. But there is somewhat of a disconnect between fundamentals um, and asset prices to begin with. But then further, when you look at, you know, assets that aren't being supported by these policies uh, from the Fed or these liquidity facilities that are out there, uh, that they're not experiencing that same recovery. So how does that look on, on terms of, you know, when you take the U.S. versus the rest of the world where there's not as many policies or facilities out there supporting asset prices? Um, I know we're going to have to talk about the ECB and, and, the, and the implications this week. But how do you see that being different across the rest of the world? from, let's mm -hmm. just say, a U.S. perspective, because most of our listeners sit here in the U.S. and they just think about the Fed and how it impacts the U.S. markets. But what are you seeing in the global markets um, with these policies? And um, is there that same behind the, let's say, assets that have the support of the ECB or the BAJ versus other uh, parts of those markets? Uh, so I think that you bring up some very important points. And uh, I know we'll circle back to the ECB uh, in a minute. And focus on uh, the markets that really aren't receiving a lot of support in, uh, you know, the emerging markets. And what I think is happening here is uh, EM really needs to generate growth to attract foreign capital, uh, you know, back into, uh, you know, into their local markets. And uh, you know, we also uh, are still very early on in this crisis. Uh, emerging markets are sequencing later than developed markets and, uh, you know, Asia, the, you know, big Asia markets um, in the COVID crisis. Uh, 
you know, emerging markets generally have uh, less policy room or policy space uh, to deal with uh, any type of uh, global event or global downturn. But uh, maybe I could just take a second to give some kudos uh, to a lot of the emerging market uh, economies that um, in the past uh, several years, they did a good job of adjusting their debt mix from external to domestic. They've been trying to reduce a lot of the current account deficits that create those vulnerabilities that have allowed them to both use domestic monetary and fiscal policy more than they did, uh, more than they would have been able to in uh, past crises, uh, you know, 2008 or 2001, uh, you know, for example. Uh, and this, you know, has given them space to, you know, do some domestic stimulus, but at the expense of, uh, you know, the currency depreciation. But this can't last forever. And uh, going forward, um, you know, uh, emerging markets are a derivative play on growth and emerging markets need to have those growth prospects, uh, you know, for investors to get excited to, uh, you know, uh, deploy capital. And when we look at what's happening, uh, you know, right now, one, we're in the COVID shock. Uh, you know, secondly, we're in the middle of what I think are big structural changes. Uh, you know, what do national security concerns around supply chains to China mean? Uh, is China going to, you know, do an infrastructure build out like they have in the past? And is that going to help commodity uh, exporting emerging markets? Or do they do something different this time? Uh, you know, so the the growth drivers of the past uh, that you know maybe our cyclical playbooks would tell us to you know just wait uh, you know for the opportunity and there's a lot of value built up uh, need to be examined very closely uh, this time around. Um, you know, the, and the other thing I just point out on emerging markets too is they've really been hit by three shocks in this uh, downturn. One is the COVID, you know, economic stop. Two, you've uh, talked about it at the beginning, is the commodity price shock. Uh, you know, both on energy and industrial commodities, we've not seen. You know, yes, you've seen some rebound in energy, but it's still at historic, uh, you know, at, at very low levels historically as are industrial commodities. Industrial commodities have not picked up and, uh, you know, uh, a lot of the emerging market economies tend to be producers and exporters of, uh, you know, of those commodity assets. And third, uh, you know, we've seen uh, record outflows of foreign capital uh, from emerging market, uh, you know, from emerging market economies. So those are three big shocks. So we need first to solve, uh, you know, the problem in developed markets. Um, getting back to developed markets before we get, you know, into the individual countries, I think one clear question that we need to answer is how much space is left in developed market uh, monetary and fiscal policy. And to me, in the short term, the only binding constraints I see to, you know, central bank quantitative easing policy is either inflation or fiat currency, uh, you know, loss of credibility in the fiat currency system. So uh, with this economic slowdown, we're, uh, I think we can all agree the initial uh, shock will be deflationary. And I don't think that, uh, you know, there's going to be, uh, you know, the, uh, even though we're watching deficits explode and watching a lot of money printing happen, uh, I don't think that we're going to see a lot of uh, pushback in the short run, uh, you know, on these, you know, on these policies politically. So I think there is some room in the near term. 
And then that kind of uh, needs to inform uh, our near-term investing, uh, you know, our near-term investing uh, prospects versus what all these policies are actually doing to the medium term, basically crowding out private, uh, you know, growth and private investment, uh, you know, due to the explosion of, uh, you know, the government uh, across the world, I think is, uh, you know, really going to hamper uh, the ability of, um, uh, you know, uh, of global growth to rebound uh, back to the levels that we saw even pre-crisis, which were, you know, lower than the 2008 crisis. Right. And so you, you talk about these are some semblance of inflation or this kind of broad uh, or fiat currency devaluation. But when you talk about currencies, it's always relative to something else. So if everybody kind of pursues that policy, and this is kind of the premise behind the MMT or the deficits don't matter, if everybody pursues that policy or each country does, or at least the major countries, is there truly a devaluation? How do you think about that? Uh, I mean, that is, uh, the, that, you know, that's the $64,000 question. And uh, you're absolutely right. It's, uh, you know, everything's on a relative, uh, you know, uh, everything is on a relative basis. Um, so I think that, you know, in the in the near term, we're looking at the policy mixes to, uh, you know, at, to try to define, uh, you know, which currencies uh, to get into. Um, I think that, uh, you know, what we saw in March by the Fed when they came, when the U.S. dollar was basically in shortage, when we went into, you know, the March crisis and the Fed opened up its swap lines, increased the number of banks that it offered dollars to, and then opened up a repo facility whereby uh, emerging market central banks that don't have access to the Fed dollar swap lines could uh, use the treasuries that they have on custody at the Fed to, uh, you know, get dollars, uh, you know, to help, uh, you know, support them through this crisis. Well, you know, ultimately what that's done is it's created, uh, you know, a massive amount of dollars in the system. Now, the U.S. dollar is the reserve currency, and as long as, you know, we're kind of in this acute COVID shutdown phase, there's going to be, you know, this need to safety quality. But over the medium term, uh, you know, the buildup of dollars, the fact that the interest rate differential now between the United States and other, uh, you know, developed markets has normalized, and the fact that the United States has large and growing twin deficits, uh, you know, especially on a relative basis when compared to other developed markets, uh, you know, over the medium term, I think all of these are going to be downward pressures, uh, you know, on the dollar. So, you know, you're right. Uh, you know, the currency markets are a relative game. And when everybody's engaging in policy, uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, less than uh, optimal, uh, you, you then need to start making these relative value decisions on, you know, maybe who's doing more and, uh, you know, who's, uh, it's the bigger thy neighbor policy, uh, you know, but by who's doing more. Um, so that's kind of uh, the near term playbook uh, that we're looking at for uh, relative, uh, you know, uh, for for relative currency outlooks uh, in developed markets. OK, so on that note, Bill, you you the biggest uh, economy out there and the one that people focus on most is the eurozone that's outside the U.S. 
So let's talk about some of the policies there. Give us some updates on your thinking on what's transpiring. And um, again, uh, I think there was a big thing that uh, transpired in the German courts this week. So maybe I want to touch on what you see is uh, the pertinent measures going on in, in the Eurozone, how that outlook um, or how that impacts your outlook for the area. And what do you think uh, could transpire over the next six months or so as we round out the rest of the year? I know it's a lot there, but feel free. Sure, to sure. No, well, let's start with the German Constitutional Court ruling. Uh, you know, I think this is an important ruling and it kind of came as a surprise to markets. Uh, it opens a whole can of worms, but basically the German, uh, it, so uh, German businessmen brought a, uh, you know, a lawsuit against the uh, asset purchase program by the ECB. So. Uh, they were, uh, you know, trying to challenge that, uh, you know, the legality of ECB purchases of bonds. And uh, the European Court of Justice had ruled everything's fine. Everything, you know, check all the boxes. This looks wonderful. Uh, the German Constitutional Court didn't completely overrule the ECJ ruling. But what they're saying is, uh, you know, they uh, focused on this issue of proportionality. And, uh, you know, it, what really it's getting to the heart of is, uh, is monetary policy overstepping its bound and, you know, basically, uh, you know, becoming a quasi fiscal policy or, or affecting fiscal and economic uh, policies of uh, other governments? And, uh, you know, if so, so the, 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 um, the direct impact of the ruling is that one, the ECB has three months to respond as to, uh, you know, why the uh, their purchase program is proportional under, uh, you know, the requirements of, uh, you know, the Constitution. Uh, there's some people who say, well, because the European Court of Justice said that, you know, it was proportional, this should be, you know, kind of uh, a rubber stamp. But I would be very cautious at making that assumption. Um, the if the German Constitutional Court says that uh, no, this doesn't meet those requirements. Then the Bundesbank is no longer allowed to participate in uh, purchasing bonds, which uh, you know then really starts to affect uh, you know the ECB's ability to implement uh, asset purchase programs or quantitative easing programs. Uh, the next item that this opens up is we're going to see lawsuits coming out uh, in German courts now on all of the other, uh, you know, specific uh, bond purchase programs that the, uh, you know, ECB has put out there. So uh, this now has opened the door to, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, potential uh, follow on rulings, which we need to keep an eye on. And the third item, and this is maybe, uh, you know, uh, well, actually, there's there's two more items. Let's focus on, uh, you know, the next item is, uh, you know, obviously the EU, the political, uh, you know, um, backlash that could happen, especially out of a country like Italy that's, uh, you know, really relying on the support of the ECB. When they see, uh, you know, yet again, they had uh, the Germans are pushing back on you know any uh you know euro-wide support mechanism that they had they're not allowed you know they, they've had austerity measures put on them so they you know weren't allowed to support uh their weak economic recovery over the past decade uh as much as they would have liked to now they're having the uh you know ecb uh you know policies that are meant to help them fund uh their government uh you know under fire uh, this could lead to, you know, a lot of, a lot, you know, the political risk that we've seen in Europe picking back up, uh, you know, potentially 
uh, you know, sparking the euro breakup or who's next to exit uh, discussions. And, you know, on that item, that the, there's one other, you know, very interesting, uh, you know, uh, fallout item that came from this. It's uh, this is the first time a German court has ruled against the European Court of Justice. And this is very important. There's a question of supremacy of do countries have the right to have sovereignty or is the European Court of Justice, this pan-Euro body, above all countries? And the European Court of Justice, remember, ruled that this was okay. But now the German Constitutional Court has said, well, maybe it's not. So that is also a very interesting can of worms that we need to keep, uh, you know, keep an eye on. Um, so these all present medium-term, you know, political risks, uh, you know, in Europe, and they're being evaluated in real time right now. And we can see their impact. I believe that that is, uh, you know, the first-order impact that we're seeing on the currency uh, and, uh, you know, across rate markets uh, in Europe the past, uh, you know, uh, today and yesterday. Uh, but in the near term, uh, you know, up until the three month uh, deadline of, you know, for the ECB to submit their, uh, you know, the reasons that they think that the, uh, you know, uh, QE is proportional, they can continue on their purchase program. Uh, the question really becomes how much more is the ECB able and willing to do? And the fact that they didn't increase their pandemic emergency purchase program or the additional quantitative easing at their last meeting, uh, you know, kind of uh, raised a few eyebrows. And the next meeting, that is going to be the front and center issue of, uh, you know, will they or can they, uh, you know, increase, uh, you know, their quantitative easing because uh, it's pretty much, uh, you know, I think uh, becoming. Um, consensus in the market that, you know, countries like Italy, Spain, and France are going to need some more help to help with, uh, you know, uh, all of the funding needs that they're going to have this year in response to the crisis. Um, the, one of the reasons why uh, Lagarde did not, well, one of the speculation of the reasons why Lagarde did not increase the uh, pandemic purchase programs uh, size at the, at, the, uh, at the May meeting was because she's trying to get the EU finance ministers and uh, the European Commission to agree on a European-wide approach to dealing with, uh, you know, the pandemic issue. Uh, but so far, you know, it's been basically a country-by-country -country approach that's been required. And, uh, you know, we see that the Eurogroup has put out, uh, you know, several measures on a European-wide basis to try to help countries with, uh, you know, the current pandemic. But all of these come in forms of loans, uh, you know, especially around the ESM. And uh, the problem with a lot of this stuff is there's uh, conditionality associated with it, which really means that, you know, in 2021 and 2022, uh, there's going to be likely austerity measures that come back because, uh, you know, debt to GDP levels will be, uh, you know, at least 10 to 20 percentage points higher uh, than they are today. So, uh, you know, Europe has a lot of issues, uh, you know, kind of swirling around right now as to whether they can act as, uh, you know, one cohesive union and whether there's the political willingness to do so. Uh, and we're seeing it now in this crisis, which should have been the easiest time 
for uh, you know all of these decisions to be made. Uh, you know how can we? You know how can you not want to come together as a union in time of crisis? If you can't, you, if you can't unify at this point in time, uh, you know it. I think the challenges are only likely to mount. Uh, you know going forward. So. Uh, again, in the near term, the major items to watch would one be what happens at this ECB meeting in June. The second is, can we get uh, you know a recovery fund uh, up and running? And the recovery fund is the code word for uh, you know pan euro uh, you know program that an, a European wide uh, program to deal with the you know economic fallout from uh, you know from from the COVID crisis. Um, you know, there are a couple of other interesting items on, uh, you know, on the uh, on the recovery fund and the joint fiscal response, but maybe I'll stop there and see if uh, you guys wanted, had any other questions. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to digest there in what you just went through. And, you know, I think what the issue at heart, what you bring up to, that you bring up has been a challenge for this um, European Union for some time, where you have the single state solutions and single state interests versus the the, the union itself, but um, you mentioned ESM earlier. I caught that. Uh, perhaps if you can just give a definition on that and just talk about the role and the potential, uh, the potential role that it can play in in helping you know the the union through this this crisis period. Sure, uh, you know the it's the European Stability Mechanism, and uh, you know basically the idea is uh, it can grant loans to uh, each of the member states uh, who apply, uh, you know, for uh, you know for help, um, you know, to this program. The issue uh, is that. Um, when you apply, uh, you know, for first of all, it's a loan, so it needs to be repaid. And secondly, uh, when you apply, uh, you're going to fall under certain requirements and restrictions, certain requirements that down the road, uh, your debt needs to be sustainable, uh, you know, going forward. So, you know, that that's going to come, uh, you know, potentially with, uh, you know, what we would call austerity measures or limits on fiscal spending in the future, which is not ideal, uh, you know, for countries when they're, you know, emerging from a crisis, depending on how quickly and how aggressively you apply those measures. So when we're looking at the ESM program, I think that, you know, the, the, the item to really watch is does Italy, you know, tap the ESM and, you know, what are the, you know, legal requirements or conditionality put around that? And, you know, I think that that seems to be, you know, really a third rail, uh, you know, in Italian, uh, you know, politics that it becomes, uh, you know, an issue, uh, it, it, you know, the more that uh, they open themselves up to, uh, you know, constraining their ability to spend uh, on the backside of this crisis. So, Bill, on that note, as an investor, how do you try to approach the Eurozone today? Given the, you know, we have elevated uncertainty everywhere. Uh, now you have this bickering between the legalities of the, of the you know, German courts versus the ESM and, and the euro uh, mechanisms in general. So how do you approach that space today um, as an investor? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Uh, well, the first thing we're doing is avoiding Italy completely because, uh, you know, we obviously think that Italy uh, is going to be, you know, is going to be front and center of all of these policies. Uh, Italy is kind of the first order, the first country that's uh, likely to feel pressure from them. 
you know, secondly, uh, you know, we do remain uh, underweight euro, but then we're looking at some, uh, you know, euro proxies in, uh, you know, the Central and Eastern Europe region, like, uh, you know, uh, Poland, the Czech Republic, uh, uh, Hungary, um, you know, where you have, uh, you know, similar, uh, well, where you have, uh, you know, central banks that, you know, can support, are supporting the front end of the yield curve. So um, what we're trying to do is, uh, you know, in countries where we think there's uh, credible central bank policy and there's a little bit of slope, uh, you know, on the front end of the yield curve, we're trying to find, uh, you know, areas where we can uh, deploy capital and uh, catch and, uh, you know, get the roll down uh, on the yield curve. And what I mean by that is, if you hold, uh, you know, a three, if your three-year rate is above your two-year rate, if you and your, uh, you know, and the policy rate is basically pegged for the next two years, uh, you expect to, you know, both pick up a little bit of yield and, uh, you know, pick up some capital appreciation as that bond. Uh, you know, rolls down towards the policy rate, or as the yield falls towards the policy rate, the bond price will rise. So uh, when I say that, you know, we're in kind of policy-driven markets, uh, and in the near term, that's what we're focusing on. Um, you know, those are the types of strategies that we're looking at, uh, you know, in the near term to kind of deal with uh, some of the, you know, maybe polit more uh, politically sensitive, uh, you know, issues or, uh, you know, avoiding some of the politically sensitive countries. So on that note, uh, what about the rest of the world? So you have the whole world as your oyster. Um, given that you don't have as many policy responses in other parts of the world, how are you approaching that? So, yeah, no, it's a great question. Uh, you know, what we're doing is we're, uh, you know, overweight. Uh, well, we're, we're focusing more of our investing right now in developed markets, uh, you know, rather than emerging markets. Uh, you know, in, uh, you know, a couple of emerging markets, uh, you know, we are, uh, you know, uh, trying to, you know, identify where the government is, uh, you know, both controlling interest rates and, uh, you know, controlling the exchange rate. Um, so we're looking at, uh, we're, we're, so the, the portfolio uh, today, uh, you know, is much more of um, a neutral portfolio whereby, we're, you know, uh, in trades that, you know, should at least, you know, I, I think hold up if we go through a second wave down. So, for example, uh, the Japanese yen would be uh, one, I, you know, one trade that, you know, we like as a safety trade in the portfolio. Uh, you know, normally in times of risk off, the Japanese yen appreciates. On the EM side, uh, Peru is a country where you know, we think that uh, currency stability, uh, you know, is likely to continue to play out as, uh, you know, the central bank, uh, you know, and uh, government have been effective in, you know, maintaining a fairly steady exchange rate. So uh, across uh, other developed markets, um, you know, we like Australia. Uh, we think that should there be another leg down, Australia government bonds uh, should rally. Uh, they act as a risk off asset. But we're hedging out the currency, uh, for example, because uh, we know that uh, the, given the proximity, uh, you know, to China and uh, you know all of the trade links that they have with China, and the fact that uh, you know Australia is uh, you know a very pro-cyclical, commodity-driven country, the currency is very vulnerable. Uh, you know, if we do experience uh, another uh, leg down uh, or another disappointing risk scenario. 
But on the other hand, uh, you know, we think that there's some role left in the curve, and uh, we also think that uh, the that the bonds could rally uh, in a very much a flight to safety quality that Treasuries uh, do if there is another leg down. So these are the types of trades that we're you know putting into the portfolio uh, today. Um, on the medium term, uh, you know, even though we're more cautious today, we're looking, we, we have our eye to, you know, uh, this building dollar downside trade coming. And I think that, uh, you know, it's first going to be expressed in, uh, you know, against developed markets, but ultimately uh, there are going to be some opportunities, uh, you know, that develop, you know, over the course of this year in emerging markets as well. Uh, you know, I think on the emerging market side, we need to look for countries that have sustainable debt, inflation, and growth profiles. Uh, we're also looking at countries that might be winners in the global supply chain changes. So if the U.S. is bringing, uh, you know, production out of China, do they bring it back to the U.S. alone, or do they move some of it to Mexico or some of it, uh, you know, to other countries in South America or up to Canada? Um, we're watching, uh, you know, so we're watching, uh, for what these supply chain changes actually will look like to see you know where we may want to deploy capital in the future again these are ideas for the rest of this year that we're looking out for um although uh today we're being a lot more defensive in our uh positioning and thinking for you know how we're managing the portfolio yeah and Bill, I, I think we got time for one last question here. And you, you had brought up China and then perhaps the, the rearrangement of uh, supply chains. But you also talked about 2019 being the year that was marked by tariffs. And it seems like as you know, the, the world continues to, to, to work through this pandemic, uh, the U.S. has started to talk about reescalating tensions again between the U.S. and China, you know, perhaps you know, bringing a, another, another round of tariffs against China. Um, I think there's been some rumblings, not sure how, how you know, feasible they are, but perhaps even talking about canceling uh, the treasuries that are held by China outright. And, you know, as a reminder, this isn't the first time that Trump has pondered the, the possibility of, you know, basically defaulting on U.S. treasuries uh, based on on what we have out there, but what is your take on that? Uh, well, I certainly think that we're going to see an escalation in, uh, you know, the China-U.S. Uh, dis- like this China-U.S. It, now it's a COVID dispute leading up to the election, um, and I think tariffs need to be like I, I would not be surprised to see more tariffs, uh, you know, come out because the mechanisms are already there, uh, you know, to implement them. Although when we look at what's already what's currently tariffed versus what's not, what's not tariffed are a lot of the consumer goods. So, um, you know, although I think tariffs will probably be the most likely first action, um, I don't know how much room, uh, you know, we have uh, on the tariff side to, before, you know, it really, you know, continues to impact a, a growth outlook. So. Uh, you know, the rebalancing of supply chains, I think, is going to be, uh, you know, uh, a big issue pulling, um, you know, especially pharmaceutical production uh, out of China. Uh, that That's going to be big. Um, I think that we're going to see, uh, you know, potentially like the idea of stripping uh, China of their 
sovereign immunity to uh, you know allow court cases to come against them. But more specifically, uh, you know, and and just quickly to answer your question about uh, the treasury defaulting on treasuries, I I don't see that happening because ultimately that would uh, I think that would uh, it would harm the U.S. Uh, the U.S. is the reserve currency and it challenges the full faith and credit of the U.S., which would ultimately help China in the long run. Like the if we kind of game this out, we're moving to a two block system, right? Uh, we're in it, it. It was slowly happening uh, in fits and starts. But I really believe that the COVID crisis is going to accelerate this. And I believe the item to watch is 5G. Uh, you know, where is Huawei allowed, uh, you know, in and, uh, you know, are, which 5G networks have, uh, you know, Chinese, uh, you know, allow Chinese inputs versus, uh, you know, which countries don't. And that, you know, that, that's something to keep an eye on, uh, you know, as, uh, you know, as we kind of move through the year uh, into next year. Um, because I think China is going to realize that they they're not going to want to do they're not going to want to you know react uh, in a big way to make the rest of the world angry at them. So they're going to be using their soft power a lot. They've given a lot of loans uh, you know to emerging market countries, and they'll probably give more. But there's going to probably be some quid pro quo for that. Uh, you know, so I I would keep an eye out, uh, you know, on that divergence. And I think front and center, uh, you know, in this, um, you know, split out of uh, the two blocks in the 5G uh, discussion is watch Australia. Australia has come out and asked for uh, an investigation of China on the coronavirus and China has reacted, uh, you know, very aggressively uh, to this. And uh, Australia has restricted Huawei and ZTE on their 5G networks, but remember, Australia has a lot of uh, you know economic and uh, trade links to China. So um, you know, I think uh, you know, watching the Chinese reaction to Australia will tell us you know how they're likely to respond uh, you know to uh, more actions uh, you know by the U.S. And by the way, on the geopolitical front, keep an eye on Hong Kong, Taiwan, and the South China Sea because all of those are also. Uh, you know, very uh, sensitive points for China. Uh, and those, uh, you know, are areas where, uh, you know, we're likely to, you know, probably see the potential for geopolitical escalation in the short run. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems like uh, the, the EU as well as the UK are beginning to converge with the US and Australia on their sentiment regarding China around the COVID and their response mechanism there. Uh, with the UK even saying that they're reconsidering their contracts for the 5G infrastructure that uh, China is looking to to develop. Right. Yeah. And uh, you know, just uh, you know, just quickly on the UK, you brought it up. I think that you know there are a couple of items quickly to watch there. One, it looks like Brexit is going to be uh, you know another like it, it looks like they're still uh, the base case is to Brexit do Brexit by the end of the year. Uh, you know, so although I think that, you know, near term that, uh, you know, might have, uh, you know, additional economic pain, I think there's a, you know, kind of an idea inside, uh, you know, the UK uh, policymakers right now that one might as well just do it in a crisis. And two, uh, there are a lot of political decisions that need to be made and they're not going to be made until the last minute anyway. So 
Um, you know, that that's, uh, you know, another geopolitical event to, you know, keep our eye on. But also, uh, you know, the BOE funding, uh, it's in a kind of an overdraft line that they've provided to the Treasury. Uh, you know, they did it in 2008. And the idea is that they'll repay it back, you know, fairly quickly. They promised to repay the overdraft back by the end of the year. But I, I just note that um, when you optically look at, you know, uh, this, you know, the, this direct financing, of the treasury versus QE's like you know you know semi direct financing of the treasury, uh, you know as far as uh, the uh, you know the the broader picture like what what does it actually look like on the BOE's balance sheet? The two programs look fairly similar, so uh, you know maybe not something right now, but could this uh, you know be the spark of uh, you know questioning QE operations, you know not you know uh, as being you know kind of not this quasi, uh, you know, monetization of fiscal deficits, but you know, is this, uh, you know, potentially uh, a test case of, um, you know, well, really, what is the difference between the two besides the price that the bonds were purchased at versus, you know, the direct financing? Obviously, it's at par. All right. Well, thanks for that, Bill. Um, that's a great overview of what's going on today, and. Uh... I think uh, before we let you go, let's let's hop into Sam's favorite part of the show. Yeah, and that favorite part of the show, of course, as Sherman said. His rules for the road here are that I will offer a series of prompts alternating between Jeff Sherman and Bill Campbell, starting with Sherman first on Fed tapering. Bond purchases only. Hopefully, hopefully, oh. hopefully soon. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, the next one is going to you, Bill, with QT. Quantitative tightening. Uh, I, I guess it would be uh, the same. Twenty, Let's say 2022. Sherman, bankruptcy. Uh, elevating. Productivity. Oh, going down. Yeah, we do get the print coming in later this week, so we'll see. Uh, state pensions. Uh, benefits declining. Coronavirus task force. <laughs> uh, ending soon. <laughs> they, uh, actually, Trump came out today and said that, uh, contrary to what he said just yesterday, he's actually not going to disband the, the merry group, but they're going to refocus on economic, uh, what's it called? What's getting the economy back, back on track. So we'll All right, that's a good thing. I hadn't seen that. Okay, so that's, that, that, that's a sigh of relief. Although they did say they could be uh, losing a few members, so we'll see who. I think we know who they're talking, potentially talking about and targeting. So uh, back to Sherman with 5G. Uh, can't wait. European Union viability. Um, challenged. Beach day. Long ways away for us here in California. And the last one to Bill, Joe Paterno. Oh, yeah, it's a great coach. All right. Well, uh, for those of you don't know, uh, Bill's a Penn State alum, so that's why we got that one in there. So, okay. Well, thanks, Bill. We appreciate it. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the Sherman Show today. Uh, you can catch us on the Twitter at Sherman Show Pod uh, is where you get our handle. We'll put up some charts about this. Thanks again to Bill Campbell for uh, joining us today, and we really appreciate everything you gave us on the insights there, Bill. We'll have you back on soon. Again, it says we get more developments in the global world. So uh, you can get this on Google, Sound, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, wherever else you find your podcasts out there. So tune in next week as we have another special guest coming in 
uh, shortly. So thanks again for listening. And remember, uh, follow us on Twitter at Sherman Show Pod. Thanks. audio presentation represents Doubleline's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without express written permission of Doubleline. Doubleline has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from Doubleline, please contact media at Doubleline.com. Neither Doubleline nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefor, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. Doubleline is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any double-line entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any double-line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2020 Double-Line Capital.